Blog Talk Radio. You are listening to Dakota Aquatic, your one-stop show for the fish and reptile hobbyist. Now, without further ado, let's get on with this fun-filled episode. And here's your host, Andrew. for our guest, Dan Kroll, to call in. I just got off the phone with him. He'll be calling in any second. Tell us a little bit about what got you into breeding hog noses. Uh, sure. Um, well, I I got interested in snakes in general when I was in high school, uh, which was back in the '90s. And um, I mainly I started out with corns and kings and milks, and like a lot of people do, just kind of got a lot of different animals. You know, um, my parents and and actually myself too were afraid of snakes when I was younger and. So I wasn't allowed to have them. So when I um, when I did get some, I just sort of went crazy and got as many as I could of different kinds. And uh, when I went to college at KU, I got a job working for a pet shop called Scales and Tails Pets, which is no longer there. Um, and it's owned by a guy named Roy Ingeldorf, who now owns the Outback Oasis Hotel down in West Texas in Sanderson, Texas. And Roy actually... Um, is the one who got me into hognose. He he uh, had a couple of pairs of breeders, which he uh, got from Richard Evans. And at the time, this was like around 97, 98, somewhere around in that range, they were, um, you know, they were pretty uncommon as, as captive bred animals. And they, uh, there was, these the ones that Roy, Roy was working with, we called red phase because they were slightly red. They had red saddles, especially when they hatched out. But generally speaking, as they got older, they would just sort of turn to a more normal color, or, you know, a nice high contrast normal. But at the time, that was the best red we had, right? So, so Roy had gotten some of these uh, red animals from, from Richard Evans. And, um, you know, I took care of some of the animals in the shop and uh, helped him sell them at, at reptile shows and in the pet store. And he gave me, uh, as a gift, my first hog nose, Ruth. And I still have her. She's, she's 16 years old. And uh, that's how I got into the breed, into the species. Um, you know, from there, it wasn't until I think 2001 that I produced my first uh, captive bred clutch of, of hogs. Um, but I, you know, there's something about them. You know, I, I mean, all the different species I've had and I've bred, you know, literally thousands of colubrid uh, hatchlings over the years of various species, especially corns um, and uh, veiled chameleons. Um, you know, tortoises, uh, just, I mean, you name it. I've worked with leopard geckos, all different kinds of geckos, lizards, whatever, snakes. Um, but there's something about the hogs that just, you know, they're just a little bit different. They're smaller. They have that kind of personality about them that they always kind of held sort of a special place in my collection, even when they weren't the only thing I had. 
Uh, and then right around 2006 or so, um, my my first child was going to be born, and I had a huge collection of colubrids at the time. And I just decided, look, I've got too many snakes. I need to just back this off. I, wor- I was working full-time for UPS, and, you know, having a new kid, I just thought there's no way I'm going to balance all this. So I sold everything except for my hogs. And then I just I decided then to just focus on hog nose. And, uh, and so, yeah, that's kind of how I became uh, uh, mainly a hog nose breeder. So... Uh, that's that's the story, and you know, long and short of it. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, where do you see the the the, the, the hognose standing in the uh, hobby in the future here? Because I know there there's so many new morphs out there. It, it's turning into like it's snowballing away. The ball of python that's just taken off, and there's so many new combinations and stuff. Yeah, yeah, you know, it, it. I don't know. I mean, the ball python is such an anomaly in the way our hobby has has um, unfolded. You know, and, and and truly, like the hobby as we know it is pretty young. So it's hard to say whether this kind of thing is cyclical. Like we're just gonna there will be a new ball python. Like the ball python, really, in my opinion, is the first and only species that has done what the ball python has done. And and part of that is just simply because. Um, you know, like prior to, say, the mid-70s, 80s, most people didn't breed snakes uh, on a regular basis. It happened from time to time. But once we figured out how to manage our captive collections through brumation and feeding and uh, humidity regimes in order to get them to breed regularly in captivity, that sort of changed everything. And now we're in this, we're in a whole new world. But like even 10, 20 years ago, when I was first getting into snakes 20 years ago, you know, if I went to a show with baby milk snakes, baby corns, baby kings, baby hogs, um, uh, I've never really bred ball pythons, so I never would have gone with a ball python. But if I had to mix those things, I wouldn't know what was going to sell, you know. Um, I may sell a, a milk or a, or a corn or whatever at a show just as easily as I would anything else. Now you go to shows, and people don't even know what what a uh, mountain king snake is. Like, whoa, whoa they, they've never even heard of some of the colubrids that were common just 10 years ago. Um, so the ball python singularity in the market and the way that it's taken over for uh, for a lot of things, not just snakes, but I mean, really, if you go to some of these reptile shows, it's amazing uh, how many tables, you know, have exclusively ball pythons, the percentage of the room that's exclusively ball pythons, and then the percentage on top of that that has at least some ball pythons on their table. I don't know that it's possible for any species to ever reach that level again, but I don't know. I'm not, you know, it's hard to say. Um, to answer your question with regard to hogs, uh, you know, the thing about hognose, I was selling them back in the 90s uh, at the reptile shows for the same price I'm selling them now, you know, and the, the price really hasn't changed on these things because there really aren't that many people working with them. And the and the ones who are producing a lot are mostly sending them overseas, um, from what I can tell. Uh, like when I go to a reptile show, like I went to all of the NARBC shows this last year, um, I would be the in some of these shows. I'd be the only person with the with an exclusive table of hogs, and um, and I would be one of very few that have any hogs at all at the table. So we have a long way to go before we reach the ball python status. Now that being said, the fact that I could sell a female normal phase hog nose in 1999 for 100 bucks or 150 bucks, and I'm still selling them for 100 bucks, and I, and I don't have any reason to go lower than that because they're absolutely in demand that tells me a lot about the you know the value of that snake as an investment and then um, just the sheer volume of of requests i get every week for more and more snakes 
um, you know, I, I've produced, like I said, I've produced corns in the hundreds for many, many years. And I would, generally speaking, wholesale uh, a great deal of my, of my, the animals that I produce. Um, this year, I produced several hundred hognose snakes, and I have sold all but maybe a group of maybe 20, all of them at retail. Uh, and I don't have to wholesale them. And I get a wholesale request for them all the time. But the, the market is so alive right now for hogs. It's, it's a great investment animal. And, it, and, and there's plenty of room to grow in it. So, you know, sometimes you hear these guys who are like, oh, you know, you're going to ruin the market by producing more animals or the hognose prices are going down. The only thing that makes hognose prices go down right now is, is undisciplined breeders who don't know to hold, you know, hold the value of their animal. You know, if I have something that I like that looks good, I'll put a price on it that, that it should get. And if I don't sell it for that immediately, I don't immediately drop the price by 25%. And eventually it will sell. It just takes a little bit of discipline. But, um, but yeah, no, I think that it's, it's probably, if I had to pick a snake species right now, to invest in and of course this is i'm biased because obviously i want people to to buy hognose but but honestly just looking at the lay of things because i produce some corns this year too if i were looking for a snake species to invest in right now i don't think there's anything that really has the the earning potential uh including ball pythons i don't think there's anything that has the earning potential of of hogs uh right now because i can i can produce a, a clutch of normals and sell normal males for 50 bucks and normal females for 100 bucks all day long and and sell out i mean literally sell out um so until that starts to change i'd say it's it's an excellent investment animal now whether it will ever become the ball python i don't know so uh, but you mentioned morphs and that that obviously is going to that's going to change things a lot too because the recombinations and the new morphs are popping up and the more the snake is bred the more morphs are going to show up generally speaking so so as the snake becomes more popular, the, the number of morphs and the number of recombinations um, begins to grow, and that will always uh, generate new interest. But, um, but yeah, I don't have a crystal ball, man, but I'll tell you, it's, it is, it's looking good, as good as anything I've ever worked with, you know, uh, as far as an investment animal goes. So, go ahead. As long as, like you said, you get those disciplined breeders that don't sell for real cheap, because the ball pythons, like, Two years ago, banana balls were going for uh, like fifteen thousand dollars. Now you can pick them up for a couple hundred dollars. But like you said, with hog noses, I've never seen them drop that dramatically in price. They've been well, you know, and I think the, for... the big difference though between a ball python market and a hog nose market is discipline will reward you with hogs. I don't know that discipline will necessarily reward you with ball pythons. And the big difference is, like I said. There's a lot more ball pythons in the world than there are hognose right now. You know, um, your major breeders are sending thousands of snakes overseas, and you know, I mean, that may eventually catch up with us. But but for now, like when I got, I went to Tinley this year, uh, Tinley NARBC, and you know, my friend Court Gavarth, who's you know probably the most talented hognose breeder in the world. Um, you know, he was there with a table of hogs. I had a table of hogs, and then maybe Jeff Nemanius and a couple other guys. Uh, and, you know, then in, in a room with 300 vendors, you know, 10,000, 20,000 people over, over two days uh, coming in as guests, you know, two or three guys with hogs. I mean, there's a, that is a huge difference. Now, if me or court or anybody wanted to cut our prices by 75%, we'd sell out immediately, yes. 
But if we have, if we hold our prices, then there there are plenty of customers and there's pr- plenty of want in the market. Now with a banana bar, it's like you could sit for ten years and you may never sell one for fifteen grand just because everybody's got ball pythons and everybody's waiting for the price to go down. There's a lot of trading that goes back and forth. I mean, I, I made this joke before, but it almost seems to be coming true that like. There really is no more money going into mall pythons. People are just trading the money back and forth now. Like they've reached capacity. So it's like, you know, it's 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 more of a um, uh, a trade thing than a growth thing. But I don't know. I'm not a ball python guy, so I can't say. And I'll tell you what. Look at the ball python, though. What an amazing animal. And what, look at the the palette of colors that you can put into that that very basic. Uh, snake and it, it's just it's it boggles the mind and i doubt that you know we all all say oh well the ball python market's crashing but people have been saying that about corn snakes for years and they're still around and there's still new morphs being found there's new combinations being found people are still interested in corn snakes you know the ball python's not going to stay the dominant species i doubt but it's not going to go away suddenly people who are making money off the ball pythons will probably still be able to make a living off of them in the future and there'll certainly be animals around for people to keep as pets so but uh but anyway just to recapitulate on that you know the hawk nose market is wide open there's there's so much want right now it's a it's a seller's market so yes you should be disciplined about your prices if you you know if it takes a month to sell something that doesn't mean that the market's not hot it just you know it just means you need to wait for two or three more weeks to make that sale and this snake is only going to gain value as it grows so if you're you know like some of the babies that i hatched this fall if i held on to them until the next spring you know, I'm going to spend twenty, thirty dollars in mice on them, but they're going to go up in value by several hundred dollars just because of the size. The closer they get to breeding size, so you know, I think if more breeders start thinking that way, you know, increasing the value of their snakes by putting more time into them and being more disciplined about the prices they sell, then I think the hog market could stay the way it is for a lot longer. So that's just my opinion. That's how I that's how I see it. So yeah, I, I, as I look through the internet and see the hognose breeders they're all pretty much you know on the same page as you as that teddy for a while with all this legislation they're trying to pass do you see any problems with the hognose in there anywhere or do you even see the, you, know, you know you don't see them there's, there's always a risk for every animal that we own you know and that's simply because people are afraid of snakes so and you know i know there's some naysayers out there but this is why i support u.s arc you know, and this is why I always tell people to support U.S. Arc is because they they really are our best chance, um, you know, f- to stop this kind of thing from happening because it happens quite frequently. You might be surprised where a local city ordinance or some other kind of, um, excuse me, some kind of law will get passed uh, to try and outlaw things as mundane as ball pythons. You know, it just happened to the Royers um, a couple of years ago down in, in Texas in a small in a county down there where they tried to outlaw any constrictor. So, so you know, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but you have to understand that most people don't think the way we do. You know, when I think of snakes, I think of them as, you know, my family, as charming, interesting animals that, like, you know, that I like to spend time with or that I like to observe and that, that, are, that have warm, happy feelings. Ninety-eight percent of the world hates snakes. You know, 98% of the world, when they see a snake in their backyard, the first thing they think is, let's kill it. The second thing they think is, I wonder if it's venomous or not, you know. So 
So the threat of legislation against things as simple as corn snakes is always there. Now, our added threat with hognose is that they are, you know, epistoglyphs. They are they have rear fangs and they have, you know, a gland that produces toxins, which are technically and scientifically speaking, they are venom, you know. So in a very technical and scientific way, hognose are venomous. Now, you and I both know you know, venom doesn't necessarily mean danger, but when your average person hears venomous, suddenly they get nervous, they get scared, you know, and, and that added issue for us is, is all, it always looms. And that's why I try and be as clear as I can without being misleading that, you know, garter snakes are equally, or if not, if not more so venomous than hognose snakes are. But, you know, for some reason we feel very comfortable saying a hognose is venomous, but we don't feel comfortable saying a garter snake is venomous. But, you know, it, the, the similarities are uh, more than there are differences in that. Just the other day I was teaching a, um, um, a CAPS class at uh, this high school, this local uh, high school, and they were holding the snakes, they were passing them around, all these kids, you know, even some girls that were afraid of snakes and never held snakes before. And I mentioned that they're technically venomous. And this one girl just started, like, kind of freaking out a little bit. She passed the snake off real quickly, and she started kind of rubbing her hands together like she was afraid she'd been bitten. And, you know, like, just the, the sheer the, the mention of that word is enough to drive some people crazy. To you and I, it's ridiculous. It's like, hey, I've been bitten a dozen times, and I've never even had swelling some people do have swelling obviously but you know uh they're not they're not dangerous but but to your average person that that's a possibility and that's why we have to be careful the way we portray ourselves and and we also have to keep our ears uh open for the possibility of any any kind of legislation that comes down and write letters or show up or you know contact us arc and try and get um you know, get the right information, get an expert in there who can speak in our behalf, because we could. We, I mean, it sounds stupid, but people, things get outlawed, you know, and if you look at other countries where, um, you know, like, for instance, I have friends in Germany, it's illegal in Germany to catch any wild uh, lizards. You know, you couldn't go out and catch a wild lizard and keep it as a pet there. Now, they're not necessarily endangered, but that's just what the law is there, and that's just the way it is. Like, they just have to accept that. And I have a friend who's an alternate breeder there, and if he wants to get scenting lizards, he has to buy them from outside the country or, or captive bred lizards that aren't native to the country. Now, to me, that sounds so funny because I've got, you know, skinks that run around in my front yard here, you know, I can't catch one of those and keep it as a pet or I can't feed it to my snake. I mean, that seems, that seems so unreasonable, but it happens. So, so, um, I, I would, I would just encourage anyone to, to not be, uh, naive to the possibilities just because it sounds stupid to you. doesn't mean that it doesn't sound completely reasonable to someone else to outlaw a hog nose or even a corn snake or, or whatever. So. Oh yeah. <clears throat> you know, you talk about garter snakes being venomous. My aunt picked one up and it bit her between her two fingers, and her whole hand and arm swelled up. And it's just yeah, you know, well, they're, they're like exactly like there. hogs. They're exactly like hogs. They have uh, Duvernay's gland. They have enlarged fangs in the back of their throat. Um, they they produce toxins that are meant to immobilize their you know or possibly we theoretically I should say uh, immobilize their prey. Um, you know, I recently read a paper uh, someone sent me uh, where they're looking at the, the components of the venom of some of these uh, rear fang venomous snakes, all the way from black-headed snakes, which are teeny tiny little uh, rear fang snakes that eat um, scorpions and centipedes, all the way up to hogs and, and garter snakes. And uh, they even did LD50 trials, which are these trials they use for venomous snakes to detect how venomous they are by injecting the venom into um, 
mice and seeing how long it takes for half of the sample of mice to be killed. And, you know, strangely enough, I, I haven't actually talked to the guy who wrote the paper. Heterodon doesn't even show up in the LD50 trials, which I don't know if that means they didn't test them or if that means they didn't kill any mice. But the garter snakes, which I think it was Damnophis elegans or something, um, you know, the garter snakes have quite a, a high LD50 value, which I was kind of surprised by. Now, of course, LD50 values are, they are, um, um, subjective, you know, it's it's kind of hard to tell what that means in relation to a human. You know, just because it kills a mouse doesn't mean that it's going to kill you or even hurt you. Um, but it's still it's interesting to me that the quote unquote venom, the the saliva and and extractions that they get out of these garter snakes are capable of actually killing mice. You know, so well, I mean, garter snakes are very much venomous. You know, um, in a scientific way. But the way I describe it to my to my customers and my friends, people who ask me about it, is this: like, did you know that a palm tree is not really a tree? Did you know that, Andrew? No. <laughs> so, yeah, the uh, palm tree uh, is yeah. A palm tree is actually a member of the grass family. The, the whole yeah, way yeah. that the, the, the thing is set up. But to ninety nine point nine percent of the world, when you look at a palm tree, you see a trunk and you see something green on top. That's a tree, right? So, so yeah. in that exact same way, hognos are technically, in a very scientific way, venomous, but they're not really dangerous. They're not venomous to people. 99.9% of the world would call hognos non-venomous. You and I both know, scientifically speaking, that they are technically venomous, but only in that same way that a palm tree is not a tree. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And, uh, you know, like I've purchased from you in the past, and, you know, they're excellent animals. You you got a very healthy, great stock. And uh, oh, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, I like it. <clears throat> so why don't you talk a little bit about your YouTube channel you got going? Yeah, well, you know, it's it's been a little bit slow starting. Um, I had some I've had some technical issues with my uh, with my computer at home, uh, but I've got it going again using the local uh, library as a place to edit. Um, but yeah, basically, you know, the because hogs are a little bit different. You know, they're not, they don't exactly fit into the categories that we normally keep colubrids, you know, from temperature and feeding and all these different little things. Um, and, and that combined with the fact that they become much more popular suddenly, there's a ton of people out there who have questions. And I think if you ask any major hognose breeder, they'll tell you that it is, it's overwhelming, honestly, the, the amount of emails and, and text messages you get or Facebook messages you get about the same subjects over and over again because people have the same issues. My male was eating great. Now it's two months later and he stopped eating. What do I do? You know, um, I just had a clutch of babies. Two of them ate. The other ones won't. What do I do? You know, like, um, my, you know, my snake keeps regurging, whatever, you know, just the same common questions you get from same people over and over again. What kind of substrate should I use? And so, you know, my thought was, um, twofold. One, uh, if I put all the answers to these common questions down in video form, it's going to save me time. Now, I don't, I don't mean to be negative about like, I mean, I love getting these questions and it makes me feel, it, you know, it makes me feel good about myself that I'm someone that people would ask me questions to, but it also takes a lot of time to, to thoroughly uh, troubleshoot each and every question that people send you. And so, um, you know, I thought maybe that the, the blog could serve as uh, just a way for me to say, hey, um, why don't you go watch episode one and you might find something out about feeding response or watch episode two and you can learn about, you know, scenting or whatever. Uh, so it was that. And then also I think, you know, uh, frankly, it's it's advertising. The, you know, when I have a, a YouTube channel that people watch, they see me as a, a person who knows something about Ognos. And then the, the next obvious question is, 
hey, do you uh, have anything for sale? <laughs> you know, so so yeah. that's the the two reasons. But but my my motivation as a person, just my whole like the whole way I carry myself and the way I've been since I was a young young person, is to try and educate people. And I I think that it's a very effective um, platform. You know, YouTube allows you uh, just a, a way of reaching people that you just simply can't do. I I travel all over to reptile shows and I give talks and you know ten twenty people at a time. Um, you know, and I post things, I post information on my, my Facebook wall and that gets buried. I post posts on forums and they get buried. And, you know, I mean, you could search them out if you want, but there's something about that YouTube, like the video and having the video there, a short video with a little bit of information. And it's just a wonderful platform for reaching people. And, uh, so I think that's, you know, my main motivation with that, uh, is to, is to try and educate the world. Cause here's the thing, Andrew, like if people buy a hognose snake and it and it doesn't eat and it gets skinny and it dies. Then the next time somebody asks them, "Hey, would you like to buy hognose?" They go, eh, "I tried those; they're not really for me." You know, "Oh, hognose don't eat. I don't really like hognose." You know. Now on the flip side, if I give them a hognose snake or I sell them a hognose snake and they take it home and it grows and gets fat and it just does its little hognose thing, they're going to want more. You know. So so to me, educating especially the newest owners is the future of of my business and the future of the hobby in general. Um, I still have Ruth. She's six. 16 years old. If she, if she had died two weeks after I got her, would I still be a hognose breeder now? I don't know. I don't know. But she's living proof of how, you know, a healthy first pet can lead to, you know, somebody getting deeper and deeper in the hobby as opposed to backing away from it because of a negative experience. And this is also why I'm so, I'm so um, adamant about the way people carry themselves on forums and other places where they come into contact with people with less information than them. You know, <laughs> some of these guys conduct themselves like, well, how dare you even ask me a question? You know, or if somebody says, hey, is this a morph or is this just a normal? Instead of just saying, it looks like a normal to me, but, you know, it's a pretty snake or whatever. They say, you're a little, why would you even ask that question? You just want to make more money. You know, they attack people. And I just think it's so counterproductive because it's like, why not encourage that new person, teach them as much as possible, coddle them through their first you know, hognose experience so that eventually they become a customer who buys from you more in the future and who becomes a um you know, a member of our community who has healthy snakes and does it the right way, as opposed to making them angry or hurting their feelings or driving them away or, or you know, letting them starve a snake to death or, or you know, whatever, whatever, whatever negative thing that could happen by not helping them. So, so you know, I think the YouTube channel has all of that in, in mind, and I hope it, as it grows and as I get more episodes out, it will serve that function for myself and for, for other breeders who don't have the capability to do um, uh, a YouTube channel, you know, so... Well, I know that's I talk right. a lot. If, I if, if you haven't noticed. <laughs> oh no, that's fine. I, I, I know <laughs> that if people ask me questions and I don't really answer, I ask you because I know you'll know the answer. So, it's, well, uh, yeah. Well, and so you know, I appreciate that. But and that's not necessarily the case, though. I mean, I I may know the answer, and because I've been working with the species for 15 years, I, I have run across a lot of the issues. But I could get stumped. And, and to be frank, I have, like, like I mentioned Courtney Gavers. You know, Court knows, I mean, I think he knows as much as I do about breeding hognose snakes. We've been keeping them for a similar amount of time. But the two of us will call each other and just kind of check. You know, like he'll call me up and go, yeah. hey, um, I was thinking, you know, what about this, this, and this? And then we'll kind of rub our heads together and see what we come up with. And, you know, even guys like us, we don't know everything. I'm just, I'm still... No trying to figure out the perfect combination of stimuli to make sure that all my snakes um, 
uh, ovulate at the same time, and that my ovulations are met with, with you know, well-timed breedings. I mean, this species, more than anyone I've ever worked with, if you get their breeding time off, you'll end up with a bunch of infertile eggs. And, you know, I'm still making adjustments, taking notes. And it's, I mean, it will be years before I can answer questions definitively. Now, and, and this is one thing you want to be aware of, <laughs> is that people will give you definitive answers as to what the right thing or the wrong thing to do is. And that's not a very scientific approach, in my opinion. Like right now, you may have had success with something one time. That doesn't mean that that's the only way that it can work. And, you know, it's only through years of, of you know, keeping track of what you've done, trying different things, failing, frankly, uh, until you have, um, until you've really figured out what the best way to move forward is. And I, so while I appreciate your compliment, and I will acknowledge that I, you know, I have, I am lucky to have uh, accumulated a lot of information on the subject. I'm certainly not the only person or the end all uh, answer to all the questions, you know, not yet anyway. When I'm, when I'm like 90 years old, you can, you can say that. So. <laughs> My show is really short, so uh, I only got like a minute left. But next okay. time, I'm gonna I'm gonna have you on again, and okay. uh, because you're full of so much information. But like <laughs> what you were just saying is, when I talk to somebody, somebody asks me a question, I always tell them, "This is what I do. It works for me. It doesn't mean it's gonna work for you. Right? You can try it." So. Oh, that's but, absolutely uh, true. Like, you know, yeah. Go ahead. Well, thank you for being on the show. I, I, I appreciate you inviting me, and I will happily come back on anytime you want. And uh, I'll try and I'll try and let you talk a little bit more. <laughs> so. uh, no, I think it's better when the person who like you talking because you're the one that's uh, breeding them right now. So it's, uh, you're cool. Did an excellent job. So and thank All you right, so thank much you. for coming on. No problem. Keep up the great work. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Bye.